welcome to Inspired Island, where every episode we sit down with someone living an inspired life here on Vashon Island in Puget Sound. From world-class artists and musicians to chefs and business owners, our little rural island has it all. I'm your host, Grace McRae, a new full-time Vashon Island resident, and thank you for joining me on this journey to discover why Vashon is such an inspired island. Hello, everyone. Today is part one of a two-part Inspired Island series, which I'm really excited about. So we will be chatting with the duo behind the upcoming Gay Beret, which will be at Vashon Center for the Arts on November 22nd, 23rd, and 24th. Gay Beret was created and will be performed by husbands David Milkey and Thomas Hitoshi Pruxma. Today we'll be sitting down with David and next week we will get to meet Tom. David's a professional actor. He's appeared in both film and television. He spent many years living in Los Angeles and he's also performed shows under the banner of his own company, The Rainbow Man Productions, which I love that name. David also has experience working in LGBTQ social services, and he is one of the creators behind a popular series of educational video courses called Cozy Grammar, which I'm excited to learn a little bit more about. So, David, I'm really excited to meet you. This is the first time we've uh, met, and I'd love to know a little bit about your backstory and where your story began. Okay. Well, thank you, Grace. And thanks for having us here today and letting us talk about the Gay Beret. Um, I was born in Vancouver Island in British Columbia and in 1963 at a time where it was still a criminal offense legally to be a, a homosexual person till 1969. And it was still um, considered a mental illness until 1973. So not a great environment in this little backwoodsy town where I grew up on Vancouver Island for a, a little kind of gay kid to be born and to grow up. So I I had a lot of struggles as a kid growing up in that environment, not because I was gay, because I didn't know I was gay and didn't know what that was, but because I was perceived as being, I was always uh, called femboy and those kind of names inferring that I was like a girl mm. and not like a boy. And and that was really, in retrospect, just because I was kind of sensitive and gentle-natured and creative, and I like to write little plays and put them on and wear colorful costumes and um, and be empathic. If I, if, if I was watching, I remember like watching Disney movies, The Incredible Journey, when the Siamese cat falls in the water and drowns and it's laying there all bedraggled and drowned and just sobbing in the theater. And then the other boys around me would be like, oh, look, femboy's crying again. And it was always like that, that having to always learn as I got older to try to hide that sensitivity and try to mm-hmm. act tough and and what I thought the boys were supposed to be like. And it was like having a double life at school trying to act like a, how a boy was supposed to be. It was like my first acting job, really. And then at home, kind of losing myself in the world of television and all my TV shows that I love to watch, all those 60s and 70s shows that we all grew up on. But I had this really strong connection to those characters because they were safe to project emotion onto because I was just passively, you know, watching them and they never judged me or or criticized me or... So 
I, I kind of ended up becoming more attached to them than I did to my own family, really. I had a distant father, and, and my mother liked to be social, and she loved to be with her friends, and she was a great person in a lot of ways, but she just didn't really like little kids that much. Mm. And I learned later that she had had a lot of bad things happen with her father and um, sexual abuse kind of things. And then she went on to have four boys and no treatment for that, nobody ever talking about it, it being this secret hidden thing. And so that came out in her as a little boy, if I would hug her as her oldest, as the first son, in some way in her psyche, any kind of interacting with an opposite sex child had a sexual connotation and she didn't want to put that. So she would just stiffen and mm. be triggered. And as a kid, I would take that as a complete kind of rejection, like she found me repulsive or something. And um, and there was an incident when I had begged her to buy me this expensive hockey jersey one time to wear at school like the other boys did. And um, this bully just took it off of me and was like, if you want it back, you have to fight me for it, basically. And I was like, oh, okay, well, you can just have it then because wasn't going to fight. And then I went home and my mom was angry that I didn't have it because it had been expensive. And and when I told her what had happened, she said, well, I'm going to call his mother and tell him that he has to give it back to you. And I was begging her not to do that. And then she, she lost her temper and she goes, stop being such a little femboy. And that was like a seminal moment to me because she was sort of, you know, I had this feeling that that's something your parents not supposed to go there with you. And she never did really before. They let me kind of play with a Barbie doll if I wanted to, as long as I had it hidden. And they got me a, a Easy Bake Oven for Christmas in 1968 when I wanted one, which was unusual then. They made me wear a little chef's hat when I used it, but at least they got it for me, right? So I was grateful for those small small things, but there was a, a sense that it had to kind of be hidden in the house. So they had a sense of embarrassment too about being perceived. And the kindergarten I went to in this little town had this lovely woman who ran it who was big hearted and she meant really well, but she was a product of her times. And all of the boys had to go out at the at, during the day and make little roads and stuff in her bushes around her kindergarten. And the girls got to stay inside and play in this big dress-up house, like a giant dollhouse that you could actually go kind of inside it. And there were costumes in it, and it was like the coolest thing. And I was always getting caught going in there, and she would get really angry and um, send me back outside. And she called my parents in and told them that, they, that she thought they needed to take me to Vancouver in Canada and get hormone treatments because I wasn't, you know, and she meant well. It was like she was trying to fix this problem that, as she perceived it, in a well-meaning way. But fortunately, my mom was a nurse and my dad was a dentist, so they they didn't do that. But the sad thing is that there were other people who had been called in there by her over the years who, you know, weren't as educated in that way, and they did do that. And I don't know how that worked out for some of those kids, but... Um, so that was all the environment kind of that I grew up in. And, and then at another, you know, eventually my dad left and there was a lot of problems at home and, and dealing with all that as the oldest after my dad left and my mom kind of had a breakdown 
and she started kind of taking some of her anger out on me when she would drink. And um, dealing with that on top of feeling at school like I was just not allowed to be interested in the things I wanted to be interested of living this fake life. Um, even being good at school in this was considered to be kind of a, a, a girlish thing to do, mm. and, you know, get bullied for even having good grades. So there was like, it just got to a point where I felt like something in me said, you have to save yourself kind of and get out of here. And I, I did. I ran away when I was 15, partly as a test, I think, to see if my mom would make me come back or, or to get the big hug when I would come back. But instead, when when I got caught by the police breaking into a house where I ran away to way up north in British Columbia in this town called Mackenzie, because I'd heard you could lie about your age and get work there in the pulp mills and things because they were desperate for people to work up there because it was such a horrible hole to live in, kind of. The RCMP officer came back and told me that when he called my mom that she'd said, to hell with him, I'm going to um, emancipate him so that I'm not responsible for what happens to him. I mean, she was kind of, you know, dealing with a lot of stuff of her own. From my perspective now, I can totally understand where she was coming from. And it was like another rejection in a way for mm. her that I'd left. But at the time, it was kind of a shock to have that feeling verified that I was kind of on my own. And so I struggled for those couple of years and I got into more and more trouble. I would act out and do things that I was all trying to get attention, I think. I worked too and supported myself, but I got into more and more trouble. And finally, just before I turned 17, I got arrested for shoplifting. And if it had happened a month later, when I was 17, they could have, I would have been in a whole different category as far as the repercussions or the punishment of it. Mm. But because I was still 16, they were very sympathetic when they sat and talked to me. And it was the first time anyone had really sat down and asked me about my life or what I was interested in, this very kind police officer. And I just, all, all this stuff poured out. And in, and in amongst what poured out was that I'd always been interested in acting. And and so he recommended that when I had to serve my community service hours to the probation officer, they set it up so that I got to serve it all at this theater company in Vancouver. And that was a big kind of turnaround moment of just getting to be there and being in that environment and being validated for being interested in all that. And it was so affirming that it made me realize that I always had wanted to go to Los Angeles and sort of be inside that TV. And I thought, if you're in mm -hmm. that world, then life is perfect and wonderful. But I realized I wasn't ready to go there at that point. So I decided to go back to my town and finish high school, to drop back into school. People had convinced me that if you at least get your high school education, then maybe you might want to go to a drama school or something and you'll have options. And also I had this sense that I didn't want to be someone who ran away from problems for the rest of my life. Some little voice that I tapped into told me that. So I went back to drop back into high school. And when I did, my very favorite teacher that I'd had as a kid in elementary school, the one bright shining light in that bleak world there, had moved from the elementary level to the high school level and had started doing drama productions there and musicals. And so she remembered that as a really little kid in elementary school, I'd had an interest in all of that. And so she said, well, this is great. You know, we're going to be doing Oklahoma and I need someone to play Curly. And 
no boys are coming out to try out. And so there had also been this issue where the school board was refusing at first to allow me to drop back into school because they thought I'd had too many, as they said, sort of worldly experiences and I might be a corrupting influence on the other kids. And so she personally went and vouched for me and staked her impeccable reputation on the line and said, I'll make sure he toes the line. He won't get into any trouble. I'm going to keep him so busy doing drama and, and making sure he's, you know, living up to his academic potential that I know he has. And so she did, she did that. And she even let me live in the basement of her house where her dad was living and was taking care of her old dad because there were still problems at home and I couldn't really stay there. And so I got to finish high school under her care and we became, you know, she became more than just a teacher. She became like a kind of surrogate mother friend. We started competing together in these provincial music festivals when I'd started taking singing lessons and she was a pianist as well. So she would accompany me and we would go in these festivals and we started doing well and, and advancing up and getting attention for that. And then I got opportunities to be in musicals outside of the little town. And when I graduated from high school, I got scholarships to the BAMP School of Fine Arts and provincial performing arts scholarships and offers to be in plays. And, and then I got an opportunity to do a pilot for a TV series that was cast in Vancouver that was going to shoot in Los Angeles. So I did it and I found myself in my dream world of LA at 19 and the pilot didn't sell. And so I decided to just sort of stay there and see what would happen without having had any real training, mm. a little bit of experience, but no really real training, which ended up being a bit of a problem later. But initially, because I looked young, I looked like I was under 18, so I could play 15, 16. It was kind of a um, advantage for being able to get work pretty easily uh, especially doing like bit parts on a lot of the sitcoms that had teenagers at that time on them, like Facts of Life and Different Strokes and the soaps that shot in LA back then. This was like 1982. So I did that and I'd find myself on these sound stages where these some of these shows I had actually, you know, been in, loved as a kid had been made on or on the lots where they'd been done. And sometimes some of the exterior sets would still be on the back lot. And I was just like in this sort of heaven world. But then as I started to get speaking parts, something odd started to happen where psychologically there was something about that big eyeball of the camera and all this unresolved stuff inside that I just kind of tamped down. And looking back on it now, I can see that there was a very weird schism that happened with that, that wanting to be seen at the same time being afraid to really be seen. And so it mm. manifested mm. as in this defensive anger is how it would come across on camera. And I would be told that a lot, that you're, why are you so angry in this scene? And I'm not angry. I don't understand. I don't know what you mean. And my lack of training as an actor started to really show. And then I had an incident happen too, where I, I got a, I got a nice speaking part job on a show called TJ Hooker that was starred William Shatner from Star Trek. So I was like, oh my God, I get to be in a scene with Captain Kirk and was really excited. But the, the part was, it was the year that Boy George first came on the scene and was a big deal at the time. And they wanted me to be this teenager who was obsessed with Boy George and wanted to be Boy George, this gay teenager, which was kind of, you know, a little racy at that time. 
to have a gay teenager on a on on a, ABC. So I was all made up to look just like Boy George, and and there was a weird incident that happened where the the director of the episode was this actor named James Darren who had played Gidget's boyfriend in the old Sandra D. Gidget movies in the late fifties and early sixties, and he had this chance to direct this episode and. For some reason, I felt right away that he didn't um, like that this character was in this. Hmm. He just seemed kind of angry, and I felt uncomfortable right away that the energy that he was directing at me. William Shatner was really nice, and when we were rehearsing this, William Shatner was chased these bad guys onto a bus, and I was supposed to be on the bus and like my little boy George guys, and he was all out of breath, and he was supposed to say to himself something like, um, oh, I'm getting too old for this. And then I was supposed to lean in and say, oh, darling, you're only as old as you look, sweetie, and put my hand on his shoulder and kind of wink at him. And then he was supposed to turn and look at me and derisively say, "Um, oh, that's brilliant. Do you mind if I have that laminated for my wallet? And then I was supposed to say, oh, honey, you can laminate anything of mine anytime you like. And so it was really, Mm. and it felt uncomfortable when we actually did it. Like, I hadn't really thought how weird it might be doing that with Captain Kirk, other than the excitement of getting to be with him in a scene. But the actual doing it brought up a lot of weird feelings. And then to make it worse, James Darren kept directing William Shatner to act more disgusted by me. Mm. And, And he didn't tell me anything to do. So I thought, well, I guess I have to try to make, give him more to be disgusted by. So I started camping it up more and more and being more blatantly kind of flirtatious with it. Sort of like, you know, like I would have imagined Paul Lynn or Charles Nelson Riley would have done it when I was growing up because they were my role models of what gay characters were supposed to be like, that conditioning, that that's what Hollywood wanted. Mm. So I was camping it up more and more and all of a sudden James Darren turns around and, and he goes, would you stop being such a queer just let the costume do the talking. The way you look is, you know, like queer enough. And it was such a shock. It, it triggered off something, and I was fighting tears all of a sudden on this whole crew, this whole busload of extras, because we were filming on a bus, the crew and the bastion of male masculinity from my childhood TV world, Captain Kirk, you know. In, and so it was like this weird mix of my my world in the TV was my sanctuary mixed with the horrors of the playground kind of coming together. And um, like an outburst like you're, you had experienced with your mom too, like a punch well, to the that's, gut. That's what I realized later with through the help of my friend Marie when I called her and was telling her how I'd had this kind of very emotional reaction that felt out of proportion to the situation in some ways. And I was just equating it to the schoolyard, but she was the one that said, well, actually... It sounds a lot like that incident you had with your mom. And she said, I think, sweetheart, you know, you, it's time that you start looking. You can't go through life blaming how people were mean to you because you were perceived as this sort of gay boy. That was okay to get sympathy for that for a while, but now I don't want you to be hobbled by that. And you have to look at what made you extra susceptible to that. And that was this, the breach in the relationships with your parents and I said, well, so we just switch from blaming gayness to blaming parents? Mm-hmm. Like, that's sort of cliched too, right, to blame parents. And she said, it's not blaming them. It's just understanding. 
you can do it in a compassionate way. Try to understand them and how they were parented as well, the bigger picture. That's what I'm talking about. And so that started like a much deeper looking at all of this stuff, which was great because right after that, it was shortly after that, that the whole AIDS crisis hit in Hollywood or and everywhere, but it hit so hard there. And I was in a play in 1984 that was that got a lot of notoriety. It was about a bunch of gay teenagers again that were supposed to be uh, dormitory mates in this New York University, and it was a comedy. And I was supposed to be playing a straight guy that was pretending to be gay to infiltrate in with all these real gay guys so that I could write an expose book about what's it really like to be gay, kind of mm. was the premise. And But anyway, in real life, all 12 of us that were in the cast were gay because straight actors, I guess, just didn't want to do it. And we be, we all became quite bonded with each other over that period of months that we were doing the play, and it kept getting extended, and it was doing really well. And then people in the show started to get odd illness things started to happen. It was just as all of everything started to kind of happen, and there was no name for it. And, and uh, you know, it was like we'd all come from our little towns, and we'd sort of come to the big city and found our tribe, and then... That was the feeling like, ooh, you can kind of take a deep breath. And then as it as more and more stuff started happening with this, they were calling it the gay cancer and all these weird names at first. It just, any of that internalized homophobia that we'd all ingested as kids, it just really fueled it. And within a short amount of time, some of the young men of my age that were in that show died. And it was like suddenly being... Uh, indoctrinated into the world of illness and death like way before you normally would be. So it, it demanded a deeper having to look at that internalized stuff, you know, like you, otherwise you could have been really swallowed up by it of almost feeling like, yeah, I guess we, we deserve this to happen. That's how it felt to me. And it that was an ugly thing to have to sort of look at and feel. And it scared me from having relationships and and everything and and just kind of and then looking at hollywood itself still that, that caused a lot there was suddenly like a stigma on being an out gay actor and there was a period of time where you people were afraid to do any kind of scene where they might have to touch you if they thought you were gay mm. until more info finally came out and i don't know if you remember there was that huge scandal about rock hudson kissing um linda evans on dynasty before he had been, um, before it had come out that he was gay and then it came out and that he had kissed her and there was all this fear and then he died of, of complications from AIDS not long after that and it, it just kind of fueled behind the scenes there. There was a lot of fear and, and a sense of being judged if you walked in and somebody thought you seemed gay. So it was back to having to try to act straight all the time and not let people know you were gay if you wanted to try to keep working. And for me, it was almost impossible because I had been in this gay play and, and my resume had these those kind of parts on it. And so that was all part of that journey. And I, and I felt there was something, it wasn't healthy for me in that atmosphere. And I also was trying to separate this need to want to be seen from a genuine calling to want to be a storyteller. Mm. And it had all gotten kind of convoluted. 
So the more I, I kind of worked on that stuff and, and tried to really look at my parents and understand why they hadn't been able to parent in the way I might have liked and all of just working on all that stuff. And there was a lot of resources for that in L.A., which was wonderful. Everything from, you know, going to the Bodai Tree bookstore every Saturday and where they had every kind of sort of new age, spiritual, self-help kind of book you could imagine. And I'd just go in and let my inklings draw me to some book. And without questioning it, I would get that book and that would be my book that week that I would voraciously devour and try to learn. And then I'd also go to meetings for children of alcoholics or... um and then when I discovered from kind of interviewing other relatives and reading more and looking at my mom, and I realized she had all the symptoms of somebody who had been sexually abused and piecing it all together like a detective and um, learning about shame and internalized shame and seeing how it was systemic in my family. And then that all led to, to then wanting to try to find a purer form of performing in some way that wasn't connected to the Hollywood stuff and the camera. And so I just started going for free to nursing homes and asking if they'd like mm. to have somebody come in and entertain. And because uh, my mother had worked in a nursing home when I grew up, and so it was an environment that I, I knew they often needed some kind of entertainment in there. I wasn't uncomfortable in that environment. And so I did that for a while. So I'd go in and do these sort of shows with lots of colorful costumes and bring flowers and contrive an excuse to get down and sing a romantic song from some <laughs> musical and then leave or give a rose or flower to the lady or pull them up and dance or have some little, some human touch with them. And I found that doing that, it sort of, again, it sort of healed something in me and I got back in touch with just doing it for the joy of giving it and not getting anything back from it other than that. And then ironically, that ended up leading to having relatives be there to, for the entertainer coming to, and they'd see their parents, you know, kind of come to life a bit with the music, which they, that's sort of the last memories that seem to go or is association with songs and music. And then they might be like, oh, well, maybe I'll hire him to do like a birthday thing or a society party. And then I started getting commissions to do those kind of shows. And it just kind of kept growing from there to doing all kinds of, um, like for the American Heart Association or things for raising money for AIDS as time went on or for the City of Hope, they call it, in Los Angeles for cancer research. And they have these huge functions in the big hotels in Beverly Hills and they needed these shows. And, and I would customize it, write it for whatever they wanted the theme to be. So I got to hone those skills and confidence at doing that and um it became a whole business in itself doing yeah. doing that kind of stuff and then as more and more of that healing went on to want to express some of what i'd learned in some form through performing so i started dipping my toes into just creating a sh shows for the sake of of trying to share this distilled gl glimmerings of some kind of wisdom mm. and and that went pretty well and and so that, uh, and then my friend Marie, who had been so instrumental to all this, was she got was diagnosed with breast cancer, and she called me in L.A. and told me, and I said, well, what what can I do to help? And she had no children, and her husband had died, and she said, I just want to be where cancer isn't. So I took that to mean that she wanted to be so immersed in something positive that she wouldn't have time to think about the cancer. So she'd been such a phenomenal English teacher and always kind of this bigger than life character that I had got this idea 
And I'd been taking film production classes at the American Film Institute and saving up money and wanted to try to produce something. So I said, how would you like to be in your own grammar series? And that was how the Cozy Grammar started. And she said, yeah. So we, I went back to Canada and she had all the aggressive chemo and radiation and drugs that they had to offer her for that first line of defense. And she had a good reaction to it. They had told her it was going to be terminal. It had gotten past the lymph system and it was in other places, but mm. she had a good reaction initially and it seemed to kind of go into remission and she felt good. So we went into production and we just kept making episodes over the next almost about four and a half years. We ended up doing 114 episodes in between bouts of treatments for her over the over those periods of time. And then we would do the post-production on episodes when she was in another treatment recovery phase. And then when she felt good again, we'd shoot some more with the same crew of people that she loved. And we shot them all outdoors in these beautiful locations in British Columbia. And did you do most of the production from start to finish of those? Yeah. Yeah. I'd kind of oversee it. I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't very good at the technical, at the grammar part of it. That was her area. (laughs) Yeah. But as far as the conception visually and the production part of it in that sense, I loved all that and sort of directed them and conceived them and um, kind of put it all together and oversaw all the post-production. And then she was a classical trained pianist. So we all, the other thing was getting her into a studio to record all this classical music for the soundtrack and uh, which meant a lot to her to know that her music was being you know uh, some record of it would exist but then eventually she got there were no more line of defense drugs and and it and she had to succumb to it and um but before she did just before just like within a month or two before she passed I had been pretty good about, you know, taking care of her and keeping up a positive attitude, but I one night was really feeling sorry for myself, really letting it sink in as she was going downhill, what it was going to be like without her in the world. I was so dependent on her, and she was like everything to me. And so I kind of had this meltdown and said to her, you know, like, you get to die, and I have to stay here. Because we'd always felt like we were on this journey together and exploring mysteries and growing together. And, and now you get to go into the ultimate mystery, I said to her, and I, I still don't get to know what it is. And she was like, well, it's, you know, it's okay. And, and she was sort of hesitating in, to say something. And I was like, what? And she said, well, I had this experience and I don't know if, I'm not sure if I should tell you about it or not. And I said, well, you have to tell me now. (laughs) So she told me that laying in bed, half awake, half asleep one morning, she had had this, what she called kind of a flash, where she had seen this man. And she said, I saw this man, and I knew when I saw him that you were going to meet this man. And, and And she said, and it gave me so much comfort because he, I could see he, he has music, he has words, he has poetry, he has all the things that you love. And she was, you know, he's, she said he's dark haired, dark eyed even. Um, and she was like trying to come up with all these things to describe the sense of him. But she, but it was mostly that she felt he seemed so, was going to be so right for me. And it gave her all this peace about going. Yeah. And, um, and she said, I don't know, he's just, he's magic. <laughs> and so um, uh, after she died, 
I kind of just thought, well, maybe I didn't, I believed she was telling me that that was the truth, that she had had an experience, but I thought maybe it was just her unconscious manufactured it to make us both feel better. I, I wasn't looking for this person. And it was a few years after she died that, uh, in that, in that interim time after she died, instead of going right back to LA, I was asked if I wanted to do some work in the, for GLBTQ in Canada. And I was offered the position of gay community development coordinator for one regent of British Columbia, where I'd have to go in and set up support groups initially for, for youth. But we discovered the youth were doing actually pretty well at times had changed so much and it, and that what we really had to do was set up support groups for older men of my age and older who were having this huge grief at, at how the thing had tides had changed and they had been told that they could never have all these things that suddenly the younger ones were having and they were having to really face what they'd missed. And so there was a lot of grief that had to be held. And, um, so I wasn't looking for anyone. I was just very caught up in all that. And I went to a birthday party in Vancouver for another mentor of mine who ran this organization called Men in Touch, where it was a group for, it was an organization, organization for gay or straight or anybody who identified as male to get together and they would learn how to do healing, nurturing touch and mm. to hold space in talking circles just to support each other in this lovely nurturing way. And it had helped me a lot. And so for his 65th birthday, when I went to celebrate it with him, he, he um, said, well, there's this other guy that's going to be bunking in here with all of the people that are coming for the birthday stuff, but he's here to go to this wedding. And he's just a friend of a friend, so don't, don't pay him any mind. He'll be coming and going. So I was like, okay. And then that night, when we were all sitting around, the door opened, and Tom walked in. And when I saw him, I imagined I could hear Marie's voice in my head saying, pay attention to the man that just walked in the room. And I'd never heard her voice since she died like that. No, no wooey wooey, nothing had happened. So I paid attention. And then I heard very clearly her voice say the word joy. Huh. And that was a loaded word because that was what she'd heard her, just before she died. Her dearest wish for me was that I would find joy because she'd always felt there was a part of me that was lacking in that somewhere in me. And so it was like, oh my God. So I started to talk to him. And the more I talked to him, the more it was like checking off a checklist of he was a writer, he was a poet, he was a musician, he loved to travel. He was like everything she'd said. And then finally he sort of reached into my ear and pulled his business card out, supposedly. And I looked at his card and it said, Thomas Satoshi Pruksma, magician. Like he was magic just to really make sure I got the message. <laughs> so it was just one of those extraordinary life experiences. And then we, you know, sort of went from there. And, and now here we are doing this gay beret show that's kind of a confluence of all these things where, where when we got married last year, we wanted to, um, we wanted to show our appreciation to all our guests by kind of sharing our story. And I wanted to pay tribute to Marie hugely. Mm -hmm. I want to evoke her presence there. And also to pay tribute to all of the people I, who had passed away in their youth when in the AIDS crisis and, um, and all of the people that fought for so long and didn't get to have the benefit of what we 
get to have now as far as gay marriage and and all of that and and just I was so full of gratitude for all of that and wanted to conjure all that up in a in a theatrical sort of way so we wrote this show called Gay Beret Mm. that told our individual stories and then it all culminated at the end in actually getting married so that it would have more meaning when people knew what the journey to get there had been right and so it it was a lovely super emotionally charged evening and a lot of people projected a lot of their own brought a lot to it that had nothing to do with being a glbtq person and i realized there was a lot of universality in it and so when we were given the opportunity to do it again as a public performance uh at the at vca i thought it it would be fun to get to revisit it with that in mind Mm -hmm. and be aware that that's kind of what it is through our specific stories as as gay men but in that specificity the universality of all of us searching for love and having to look at what stops us from believing we deserve to have love Mm -hmm. what impedes us from giving it fully and receiving it fully and um so that's what this version of the show has has kind of become um more consciously uh, aware that that's what it is i guess is is the way to say it so we've had to reimagine it a little bit and put in a couple of add some different songs we wanted to make it a full evening of theater so there's an intermission so that meant um expanding it a little bit and getting to put in some more things so that's what we're that's what the show kind of is and what we're offering to anyone who sounds intrigued by something like that excellent and um, is Gabriel just the two of you, you and Tom? Yeah, it's just the two of us. And the, you know, uniqueness of the specific group of people gathered for each particular performance, as, as it always is, that collective synergistic thing that happens with an audience. And it's, it's, it's like we, it's Gabriel because it, it has kind of like a cabaret form. Mm-hmm. But also, Gabriel is also gay in the sense of, the original meaning of the word gay that joy and and sort of that journey to to joy ultimately that saying yes to a life partner that really engages you on all levels where within that relationship all of yourself is welcome and encouraged and and, and like we always say our our thing that we always say is that when the time comes for us to part whether by death or by choice that we can look at each other and know that we became more fully who we were meant to be because we were together and that that's always the measuring point for every decision that has to be made. Is this, you know, is this something that serves that or does it not serve that? And that's the universal thing again, that we all should be so blessed to have that kind of relationship and that we have to work at it and that it takes effort and work to to figure out what impedes us from embracing that or being willing to settle for kind of less than that yeah. sometimes. And, and also, we also wanted to de- debunk the idea because we didn't get together till we were in our 40s. This idea of that a relationship has lots of elements of a lot of work that's very challenging. Like mm-hmm. Joseph Campbell, the mythologist, used to say it's an ordeal. <laughs> but it's a beautiful ordeal because you come out 
of it with so much more self-awareness and and that uh we just want to wanted to be very conscious that that's what it is it's not the happily ever after that we're kind of sold that it is that makes people be set up for thinking they've made the wrong choice when the issues start when their issues start coming up in the relationship instead of seeing it as an opportunity to lovingly work through those issues um so that's that's a theme that kind of runs through it as well yeah and definitely the theme of the importance of the mentors in our lives whoever they are if you're lucky enough to have your parents be your main mentors then that's wonderful but a lot of us have to seek out other mentors other chosen family mm-hmm. and and so that's a big part of it too and that sort of journey of that and how marie gently would keep kind of guiding me to that even though it would make me very defensive you get the closer you get to that core the more tender and defensive it can get and it and it's been feeling really good to share that because it makes her live on she used to talk about the the ripples the ripple effect that when you what you do in life what you put out there ripples out like on a pond and you don't see how far the ripples go you never know fully and i love this idea that you know she died in 2005 but she's still rippling out there now through this through me getting to share my story of her and also but also in the grammar series because it's still been out there all these years and um and and so that's it just means so much to me yeah that's beautiful and on that note so you have spent so many decades of your life performing sort of your own work coming up with shows and performing them as a as a one-man show what has it been like to now combine that art form with somebody else (laughs) (laughs) that's a really good question well the the first thing i say to that is we we joke a lot about how if you want to figure out if you really are compatible enough to marry somebody write a musical with them (laughs) and if you survive it (laughs) then maybe you've got a a pretty good chance because it demands all the skills that a good relationship demands of communication and respect for each other and being tender you know with very sense we're all very sensitive of our creative stuff we put out there and but yeah it's been really joyful to figure all that out with each other and especially now doing it again getting to revisit it again now in preparation for this version of it we kind of have our way of working that we worked out before Mm -hmm. so it's been even more kind of enjoyable to kind of know whose strengths are better and and try to keep the ego kind of out of it just like the best idea wins instead of it has to be my idea or all of that stuff that comes up and it's fun it's just on the level of of just sharing that kind of collaboration like i had enjoyed that with my friend marie and i and i've enjoyed it when i've done regular plays and i love the camaraderie of theater but for doing these things that are self-created it is it has been um it does add something to it to have someone to sit in the dressing room with if nothing else you know <laughs> when you do the one man shows it can be a little lonely sometimes um, so I'm, so it, 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 we're hoping that we'll get to do the show more and just keep kind of evolving it and have that as something that we can do together at times and, re, and as well as our separate projects. And I think that's good for a relationship too, to have, have something that you have in common like that. If you don't have children yeah. or, 
some creative thing that you have can share together and then also have your separate things and find that balance. And how did you and Tom make it to Vashon after you met? Well, Tom was living here oh. in with his sister and brother-in-law and in a yurt that his sister and brother-in-law built their own yurt. They're amazing that way. And he was living in, in their little yurt that had been the yurt they'd had before they built their big, huge yurt. I'd never heard of a yurt. I didn't <laughs> know what a yurt was. And uh, I was living in Canada at, at that time still when we met. And we would kind of go back and forth. And eventually, after a year or so, when we were pretty sure we wanted to be together somewhere, um, I felt that I wanted to leave where I was in Canada. I, I was had only gone back there because of Marie, and she was gone. And I realized there was a part of me that was trying to hold on to that part of my life and I needed to symbolically release all of it in, in a material, physical sense. Mm. So, so I did and I came here and we I joined him here and then I had Marie's cat though. Her, she had this cat that I'd promised her that I would take care of Callie, the cat, <laughs> because Callie had been her little friend who through chemo and everything, Callie would sit there and was very sweet with her. And, and so, um, we looked around on Vashon and we found this other yurt to rent that had a little cat door in it. And <laughs> it was in, to be. <laughs> it was meant to be. And it was in 13 acres of woods with no dogs, no real predators for her except raccoons to deal with. And so that, so we, we rented that. And, and that was nine years ago now. Wow. And Callie passed away two years ago after living to 22 years old, having a very happy cat life. And we haven't found anything else that we like more like it's so cozy we've kind of made it you know the way we like it and so as long as we're not looking to buy something and settle down we'll just we're just kind of happy there and we travel a lot our work takes us away a lot too so we're we're away a lot of the time but it's so beautiful to come back here yeah um and we really like it here we haven't found anywhere else we thought at first well maybe we'll our base will be in LA or New York or somewhere like that, but we always seem to like coming back here and um, probably will, I think, settle here in some form, permanently have a home base here. We'll probably build a house that's like a yurt because <laughs> we're in love with that shape now, that yeah. nurturing shape. And we've learned how to downscale quite a bit, so we're kind of happy with the simplicity of it too. Yeah. It's sort of, I feel like, the long-term trend. Everybody's trying to simplify life, so you gotta you got to jump start there. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. All these t cool tiny houses that yeah. people are designing and stuff, but I, they have corners, though. <laughs> got to have that round and the big dome in the top. And so other than Gay Beret, do you have anything else on the horizon that's really inspiring you these days? Well, just we're doing a whole other level of, of the Cozy Grammar series. We what we when i met tom that's another cool collaboration we had was he's a wonderful teacher himself and obviously with his uh writing and poetry background we got the idea that of doing companion episodes to every episode that marie did where she was just teaching a part of speech like this is an adverb or this is how you use commas or or whatever that we do a comparable episode and go back to the same location initially and Tom would do another whole episode on how knowing what an adverb is 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 practically useful as a writer 
so that it kind of balances, it adds another dimension to the original episodes of the series. So we filmed all of our basic grammar levels and the punctuation course levels back on the same locations in Canada. And then we started branching out for our essay course, and we filmed a bunch of episodes in England last December and uh, discovered that that can add another whole dimension to them as well. So we did episodes there around um, where Tom was walking all over London composing an essay, a certain type of essay. And then another type of essay we did was built around J.K. Rowling and the Harry Potter phenomenon where we went to the publishing house where she had gone with her little manuscript and, and showed the door where she'd gone in, you know, and the, everything came from that. And we got to go to Leavesden Studios as well, where they filmed all the Harry Potter movies, and they still have two big sound stages there with all the sets standing on them because they want to turn them into kind of a tourist thing where you can mm. tour the sets, and they're starting to kind of open it to the public to do that. Cool. So we were able to shoot on, on, the, on the sets, which was so cool, and show in detail all the artistry and craftsmanship. And the whole point of it was to show how this one idea that, she had on this train has sparked not only all these readers all over the world and films, but all the artists that it took to create all of that. And then we went also to the West End where they're doing the new Harry Potter play to show, you know, that the whole theater world also was inspired by it and just to try to plant those seeds. And so we hope to do our um, intermediate levels in, in possibly in places like India or in Oaxaca, Mexico, where Tom has a lot of background in those places, and, and we go back there sometimes um, and sort of add that extra layer of, of all the things that are out there in the world to discover and see. Yeah, that's so fun. I wish it was around when I was little. <laughs> I know, me too. Although I, I had Marie teaching me, but, um, but yeah, to get to be outdoors and to get to be opened up in that way is always great. That's amazing. Yeah, so that's on the horizon. And then um, right after Gay Beret, I'm, I'm committed to do a, um, a fundraiser reading of a play, a new play that Peter Serko mm. wrote called Out. Uh, he lives here on Vashon, and it's about his brother. And um, we'll be doing that right after Gay Beret at the uh, Thanksgiving weekend, I believe it is. So that's on the horizon. But mostly it's right now, it's just going to be preparing the pre-production stuff for the next bunch of Cozy Grammar episodes. Okay. Awesome. And Gay Beret is on November 22nd, 23rd, and 24th, right? That's correct. And, and tickets the, are on sale now? Tickets are on sale at VCA. <clears throat> and on the 21st, there's also going to be, in conjunction with the Heritage Museum, a panel discussion called Prelude to a Gay Beret, mm. where we've invited five wonderful people to come to Vashon and be on the panel talking about art and transformation from their different backgrounds. And, uh, and that's a free event. They're, they're asking for a $10 donation for adults to benefit the museum, but they, you don't have to pay anything and it's completely free for youth. Um, and it'll be a, an interesting, fun way to kind of ease into then the performances the next three days after that. And would you be game, David, um, before we wrap up to do a fun little quickfire question round? Sure. Cool. All right. Well, the first question is, Seattle is known for great beverages, whether it's tea, coffee, beer, wine. 
Do you have a favorite beverage here on Vashon? Ooh, I love some of the specialty drinks they have at May Kitchen. Mm. There's one that's like a spicy margarita. Ooh, yes, I like that one. I like that one. <laughs> Excellent. And if you're not at home or work, where can people most often find you on the island? Like, do you have any favorite haunts? I love to go and work, sit and do work in Minglement with earplugs in or um, Cafe Luna. I love both those atmospheres. Oh, and now that uh, the Ruby Brink is open, I love going and having a bowl of their soup in there. Yeah, it's really cozy. <laughs> in the daytime, yeah, sitting there and have that cozy soup and work on stuff. Cool. I love like, so many cool new places to eat have are here than when I first came here. It's just so amazing now. We've got this amazing selection of fabulous food here. I know. I feel like we're spoiled. The per capita amazing restaurants is not bad for a little island. <laughs> it's true. It's in, it's incredible. And when people come to visit here, they're just blown away by it. They totally fall in love with it. And I don't blame them. Yeah, definitely. And do you have any pet peeves now that you live on an island about island living? Mm, well, the only one, I, I guess, is the ferry, you know, having to factor that in all the time. And if we're we often will try to just walk on the ferry so we can and use the bus system if we're not having to go off the main bus line as much as possible, especially to go downtown. But when we do have to drive, I'm always sort of forgetting to take into consideration coming back. Like, oh my God, sometimes when the line is so long up the hill. But, you know, it's not that bad. And, and that's, if that's the worst thing I can think of, you know, I don't think anyone's going to throw a big benefit for, for us for that. So. <laughs> I don't think so either. Yeah, that's that's a good a good problem to have. Yeah. Um, and do you have any favorite Vashon Island traditions? Traditions. Well, I love you know the Strawberry Festival is fun and the and the um, the parade is fun because I do Zumba a lot on the island. I love the Zumba community here, and we go in the parade and do it. So that's a oh, fun that's tradition fun. to Zumba. Down. We do it right out here in front of the studios here. It's really fun. Excellent. And lastly, where can people go to find more about you and your work? Do you have any websites? I or? have a, there's a website called driftwoodbridge.com that has some info on it. And our cozygrammar.com site has some, well, some info, not so much about my bio, but there's stuff about Marie and I and, and how the that part of things came to be. And the, and Driftwood Bridge, there'll be more on there. I haven't I haven't put much energy into setting that up because I haven't had much need to. Mm-hmm. But lately there's been more of a need to, so so there is something there now and there'll be more on there All over right. time. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much, David. This has been a real pleasure to get to know you. And it's amazing to see somebody in the journey to become more of who they were supposed to be. So it's beautiful. Thank you, Grace. Thank mm-hmm. you. This was, it was fun. It's always good to get to talk about this kind of stuff in this kind of uninterrupted way. It's really helpful. And thank you all for listening. Again, this is Inspired Island on KVSHLP Vashon 101.9 FM. Until next time, stay inspired.